today's episode is brought to you by PureVPN. Whether you're streaming, browsing, or just looking for a little more online security, PureVPN has you covered. Rated 4.8 stars by TruePilot and seen on Wired, Yahoo Tech, The Huffington Post, and Lifehacker, PureVPN offers blazing fast VPN services at an affordable price. PureVPN also has features like internet kill switch, split tunneling, and the capacity to allow 10 devices per account, as well as 24-7 customer support. Right now, they're even offering a 7-day full access trial for just 99 cents and an additional 40% off their monthly subscription service. Use the link in the show notes to secure this deal and your online activity today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pulling a Jobcast, the Heist Podcast. The show where in each episode I take you through epic, elaborate, and ridiculous burglaries that actually happened. I'm your host, Alex Godwin-Austin, and I am confident that today's episode will not disappoint. So far, we've looked at the burglaries of a couple banks and a maple syrup depot. But what kind of self-respecting heist podcast would this be without an art museum theft? So I've decided to take it upon myself to walk you through the largest and potentially most infamous art heist on the planet. A robbery that resulted in $500 million of stolen art that is still missing to this day. I'm talking about the robbery of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, or more widely known as the Gardner Museum Heist. Before I take you through the heist itself, I think it's important to understand the context and the location of the robbery. Who was Isabella Stewart Gardner, and why does she have a museum named after her? To answer the latter, it wasn't named after her in dedication to her memory. She built it and filled it herself. Isabella Stewart Gardner, born Isabella Stewart, was an eccentric art collector, philanthropist, and apparently an overall badass. She was born on April 14, 1840 in New York City, the daughter of David and Adelia Stewart. Her father, was reportedly a wealthy linen merchant, and for the first 15 years of her life she attended a girls' school in Manhattan where she studied music, dance, art, as well as various languages like French and Italian. When she was 16, her family moved to Paris, where she was enrolled in a school for American girls, and it was here that she met Julia Gardner, who I will circle back to in a minute. While abroad, she was taken to Italy and shown the Museo Paul de Pizzoli in Milan, it was that museum that apparently inspired her to one day have a home filled with art arranged in a similar fashion so that others could come and enjoy it like she did. Shortly after this trip, she returned to New York and was invited by Julia Gardner to come visit her at her family's home in Boston. It was during this visit that she met Julia's brother, John Lowell Gardner, also referred to as Jack. Now Jack did not only come from wealth, but also worked to create his own by partnering with his father's shipping business. It doesn't take a genius to figure out what happened next. Two ridiculously wealthy young and single individuals? They were married just before Isabella's 20th birthday, and she moved to Boston, into a home that was gifted to them by her father. Sadly, Jack and Isabella had a son who died of pneumonia before he was two years old. 
Being in the throes of depression at the loss of her child, Jack decided to start traveling with his wife in the hope that adventure would raise her spirits. It was during these travels that they got serious about collecting art. In the late 1880s, she met a man named Bernard Berenson, a student at Harvard that was sponsored by the gardeners as well as a few others to go study in Florence. During these studies, he found his passion for Renaissance art and became Isabella's chief art advisor, assisting her in the procurement of almost 70 paintings, including one of the most famous pieces in her collection, the concert, which she reportedly outbid the Louvre for. That's right, the Louvre as in probably the most famous art museum on earth. She outbid them for this painting. In my ignorance, I constantly imagined that people up until the 1950s were all super tame, well-dressed aristocrats that wore monocles and top hats and went to the opera with those little binoculars on sticks. I forget that though that might have been the case for most, like in any society, there are the ones who stand out those who don't really care about the standards that society sets or expects. Isabella was one of those people. Through her travels, and likely the death of her son, she experienced life to a higher degree than most ever will, and it was no secret. Apparently she was the subject of many tabloid articles for smoking, driving too fast, and there was one instance where she reportedly attended a concert, which was supposed to be an extremely formal occasion, wearing a white headband with OU Red Sox scrawled across it in red letters. She essentially wore a baseball hat to a gala, and people were not happy about it. I'd like to think she and I would have gotten along. Her husband Jack died on December 10, 1898, and shortly after, she took it on herself to fulfill their shared dream and purchase a plot of land in the Fens to build a museum to display their collection. Construction started the following year, and was completed in 1901, at which point she moved into the residence on the fourth floor and began arranging the art throughout the first, second, and third floors. She would continue to add to and arrange the collection until she died in 1924. In her will, she left the museum for the education and enjoyment of the public forever. She also provided an endowment of $1.2 million for the museum and a strict stipulation that the collection could not be added to, sold, or rearranged in any way. And that was all going to plan. Until March 18th, 1990. Now, for those of you that hear that date and don't connect it to anything immediately, you're not alone. So let me fill you in on some context here as well. March 17th is St. Patrick's Day. And though it's widely celebrated by wearing green and getting hammered, in Boston, a city heavily populated by people with Irish heritage, they take it to another level. So at 1.20 a.m. on March 18, 1990, after the majority of people celebrating had made it home after a night out, and some were still stumbling through the streets, two police officers rang the buzzer at the side door of the Gardner Museum. One of the two guards on site that night, Rick Abbott, answered while looking at the door's security camera feed. The officers told the guard, that they were responding to a disturbance call, and realizing what night it was, he assumed that some do-gooder had seen a drunk trying to scale the fence and called the police. So he let them in. The time was marked at 1.24 a.m. Rick Abbott was seated at the security desk when the officers entered the museum. 
they approached him and asked if anyone else was on duty. When he responded that there was one other guard with him, the officers requested that he call them down immediately. While waiting on the second guard, the officers turned to Rick and reportedly said that he looked familiar and requested that he come out from behind the desk to provide identification, citing that they thought there might be a warrant out for his arrest. The guard complied, and just as he was getting out from behind the desk, he was put up against the wall and handcuffed, later reporting that in that moment he noticed that he wasn't frisked. It was during this commotion that the second guard, Randy Hested, arrived in the foyer and was quickly put under arrest. The two panicked guards were asking frantically why they were under arrest when one of the officers leaned in and told them that they were not cops and that this was a robbery. The thieves proceeded to wrap duct tape around the heads and eyes of the guards and led them to the basement where one was handcuffed to a steam pipe and the other to a workbench. Once secured, the thieves, reading out of the first page of the intimidation playbook, took out their captives' wallets and started listing their personal details like their names, where they lived, and told them that if they didn't give them any trouble, they would not be harmed, and they would even be rewarded in about a year. Then they left them in the dark. The following morning, the next shift of guards arrived and attempted to reach the security desk to be buzzed in. Failing to get any responses and not having master keys, they called their security director who was able to use his set to gain access. When they entered and saw that no one was behind the security desk, the security director immediately called the police. Authorities searched the museum and found Abbott and Hested in the basement just as the thieves had left them. An investigation ensued and revealed that 13 pieces of art had been taken, and though there were no cameras inside the museum itself, all of their activity was recorded on motion detectors that monitor the exhibits, which is why we know that there was a pause in activity from 1.35 a.m., the time they had finished subduing the guards, to 1.48 a.m., presumably to see if any alarms had been sounded and to see if the real police might be on their way. But after the 13 minutes, they were confident that they had the place to themselves. The thieves proceeded to spend the next hour raiding the museum, leaving at 2.45 a.m. All told, the robbery lasted 81 minutes. Before leaving, the thieves had removed the security camera tapes and the motion detector printouts. This was the 90s, guys. But as they were seemingly unaware that the data those printouts conveyed was also stored on a hard drive, and upon review, that data told a very interesting story. The timeline is interesting enough. I mean, 81 minutes? Just under an hour and a half is a long time for a crime of this nature, and maybe one of the longest art thefts in history. But what's more interesting than how long it took is what they took and how they took it. You see, the 13 works were pulled from three completely separate exhibits, the Dutch Room, the Short Gallery, and the Blue Room. I was able to find a map of the museum layout in the Gardner Museum website and have linked it in the show notes in case you're interested in a visual of what I'm about to explain. The museum is shaped like a standard rectangle measuring approximately 165 feet long and 100 feet wide, based on some quick Google measuring, and has three floors of exhibits, all separated into rooms with themes that Isabella took years to design. Based on the motion detection data, our thieves' first stop after subduing the guards in the basement was the Dutch Room, located on the southwestern corner of the second floor at 1.48 a.m. 
This means that the thieves skipped the entire first floor and went straight up to the second floor. The Dutch Room was Isabella's tribute to Northern Europe's greatest portraitists, and it's from this exhibit that six of the 13 works were taken. These works included three Rembrandts, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, A Lady and Gentleman in Black, and a small self-portrait etching. An examination of the frames shows that an extremely sharp blade, likely from a box cutter, was used to cut the paintings out so they could be rolled up for easy transport and storage. They reportedly tried to take a much larger self-portrait of Rembrandt, but it was left leaning against a cabinet, leading investigators to speculate that it was too large and awkward for the thieves to transport, likely because this particular work was painted on wood and not canvas like the others, making rolling it up an impossibility. A painting by Flink called Landscape with Obelisk was taken from the West Wall, along with Vermeer's The Concert, the one I mentioned earlier that she outbid the Louvre for. The sixth piece taken was a Chinese coup, which is essentially a vase. Interestingly enough, this may be the least valuable item taken that night, ringing in at only a few thousand dollars. The motion detectors tell us that at 1.51 a.m. during the assault on the Dutch room, one of the thieves split off and headed to the short gallery, also on the second floor, but near the opposite corner on the northeast side, which, like going straight to the Dutch room, is interesting to me because that means the thieves would have had to pass through three other galleries in order to get there, giving the impression that they had a very specific shopping list. The short gallery contrasts most of the other exhibits in that it was designed by Isabella to be an informal environment to enjoy her collection of old master drawings, family portraits, as well as textiles and select books from her collection, giving this room a more personal feeling than some of the other exhibits. Followed shortly by the second thief, this room is where works 7 through 12 were pulled from. Five Degas were taken. La Sortie de Passage, Cortege au Environs de Florence, Program from an Artistic Soiree 1 and 2, and Three Mounted Jockeys. The last item taken from this room was a French Imperial Eagle finial from a Napoleonic flag. And for those of you wondering what that is, it's basically a decoration that sits at the top of a flagpole. Similar to the coup, the theft of this finial is strange in that it doesn't fit the profile of the other art taken and is relatively low in value when compared to the other pieces. Investigators suspect that the thieves tried to take the entire flag, but something about the way it was displayed made that too difficult, so the finial was a consolation prize. However, that may not be the case. From the short gallery, the motion detectors tell us that they made their way down to check on the guards. Abbott and Heston both recall in their statements that the thieves came back to make sure they were comfortable. They then went over to the security director's office, where the frame for Manet's Shea Tortoni was found, to remove the printouts and the security tapes. The side door that they came through was opened at 2.40 a.m., likely their first trip removing art from the actual museum, and then a final time at 2.45 a.m. Now I want to check if you've been paying attention. If you have, you'll remember that 13 pieces were stolen from three different rooms. But I've only accounted for 12 works from two rooms. Though there are a lot of fascinating things about this heist, Shea Tortoni might be the most haunting. According to the motion readouts, the thieves never entered the blue room where Manet's Shea Tortoni was displayed. So how and when was it taken? 
That question leads us to one of our first suspects, Rick Abbott. If you recall, Rick was the security guard that opened the door for the imposters on the night of the robbery. At the time of the robbery, he was 23 years old, and it's safe to say that being a night guard was not his dream job. It was noted during the investigation that he had given his two weeks shortly before the heist. Having dropped out of music school, Rick lived in what he described as a frat house and spent a lot of his time pursuing music by playing live shows with his band and partying. So the night shift was his means of paying the bills and maintaining somewhat of a normal social schedule. Not only was it reported, but Rick himself admitted in so many words that he did not have much respect for his position. He would often come into work just after a show, drunk or high, and even admitted to having guests come to the museum after hours to use the grounds for private hallucinogen-fueled parties. There's an old Greek throne in the courtyard of the museum, and on one of these occasions, just a couple months before the heist, Rick Abbott became the only person other than Isabella Gardner herself to sit on it. So we like to party, but why does that make him a suspect? For starters, he is the one who let the thieves into the building, and though they were dressed as police officers and gave reason to search the grounds, this action was a breach of protocol for museum security. No one is supposed to set foot on the grounds after hours except the guards. According to John Paul Kroger, the man responsible for training the guards, in this scenario, the guard is supposed to get the names and badge numbers of the officers, contact dispatch to confirm their identities and reasons for being there, and if everything checks out, then they can be let in. Additionally, in another breach of protocol, shortly before the thieves rang the buzzer that night, security system data tells us that the door was opened and closed quickly, leading investigators to believe that it may have been a signal to the thieves that it was all clear. What's even stranger is that he did this the night before as well, and further investigation, as well as a video released from the FBI, reveals that on the night before, when Rick opened the door, it was to let in his boss, the deputy director of security, who was not on shift that night. Now, something about that feels weird to me, but in my research, I didn't find any suspicion aimed at this individual, and they have remained unnamed, likely to avoid harassment. When Abbott was questioned by the FBI about this behavior, he said that he did not remember speaking to or letting in his boss that night, but he would check that door by opening and closing it on every shift to make sure it was secured. Which actually makes sense to me. I've done the same thing with my car door countless times. In an interview with the security director, he contradicted that statement, saying that opening that door would have raised a lot of red flags, so if it was happening regularly, it would have been addressed and stopped long before the night of the robbery. Though the door situation is suspicious enough, what really looks bad for Abbott is the blue room and Shay Tortoni. As I mentioned before, on the night of the heist, the motion detectors show us that the thieves entered the museum, made their way to the Dutch room, and then the short gallery, and then they left. The only motion detector data that pings the blue room was earlier in the evening when Rick Abbott was making his rounds. We know the system was working because there's a ton of data from all over the museum that night. So what does this clue tell us? To me, it could be two things. Option one, the motion detectors in that room and the exhibits on either side of it stopped working sometime between the guards' rounds and the theft. This option is not impossible, as we all know technology isn't always reliable, but in my opinion, it's not very likely. The blue room is on the first floor, sandwiched between a passageway slash lobby and the Fenway Gallery, 
The idea that these critical detectors just stopped working long enough to rob the Blue Room is a bit far-fetched. Now, I can already hear you screaming at your phone, but wait Alex, what if the thieves disabled them somehow? Great question, and also very possible. But if they did that, why didn't they do the entire system? They tripped sensors in other rooms over a hundred times, seemingly not caring at all because they ended up taking the data printouts anyway. So why bother cutting just these ones? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Either you disable the entire system, or you take the evidence when you leave. You rarely see both. It's also worth mentioning that investigators found no evidence of tampering other than the stolen security tapes and missing printouts of the motion detectors. That brings us to option two. Rick Abbott was our inside man. With his position giving him access, and the only evidence of activity in that room being him, it's hard not to think of him as being in on it. However, after much investigation by the FBI, there has never been a shred of actual evidence against him. In 1994, four years after the robbery, Anne Hawley, the director of the Gardner Museum, got a very intriguing letter. It was from an unnamed individual who described themselves as a third party wanting to make a deal for the safe return of the art. They advised that they did not know who the thieves were, but that the art was stolen in an attempt to use it as a bargaining chip to reduce a prison sentence, not an uncommon tactic in the criminal world. The need had vanished, and now there was no reason to keep it, so they were attempting to come to an arrangement that would make everyone happy. The museum would get their art back, the thieves would get some money, and immunity from all charges. The writer also explained that it was being held in a non-common law country in a temperature-controlled facility, and after listing information that only the museum and law enforcement would know in order to convey that this was a legitimate lead, the letter said that if they wanted to play ball, they would have to leave a signal in the form of a coded message in the Boston Globe. The code was simple. In the next Sunday's edition of the Globe, in the financial section, if they agreed to the terms and wanted to proceed, they would put a 1 in front of the exchange rate of the Italian Lira. If they did not agree, they would leave the paper as is. Anne was certain that this was a legitimate lead and immediately took it to the FBI. Together, they approached the Boston Globe and filled them in on the situation. Matthew Storin, the editor of the paper, was happy to agree. Not only as a public service, but if this turned out favorably, he would be given the exclusive on the largest art heist in history. The only hiccup was that adding a 1 in front of what a currency was trading for could have some unforeseen consequences, so they instead put it in the middle of the column between the word Lira and the trading price. Though it wasn't the exact code requested by the negotiator, it was good enough. They received a second letter acknowledging the attempt and stated that they were pleased that they wanted to move forward. Unfortunately, it seems that the author was nervous of some overzealous agent trying to grab him instead of honoring the agreement they might have made. The second letter said that they needed time to think it over, and they never heard from them again. The FBI also investigated possible mafia connections. As I mentioned previously, stealing art to use as a bargaining tool to alleviate a prison sentence was not uncommon for these guys. Art is often regarded as somewhat of a sacred thing to a lot of people, especially very old art. It's an important part of history, so depending on the crime, it may be seen as more valuable than keeping someone incarcerated. Oftentimes, if a member of a gang was arrested, other members of the crew would steal valuable items and then hold them hostage for the release of their friends. 
This dynamic between the criminal world and the police made the investigation of the Gardner art extremely difficult and complicated. Seeing as how many of the lower level players would get picked up on charges, there was a constant barrage of leads and hints from criminals trying to use a high dollar get out of jail free card. It was apparent to the authorities when someone was blowing smoke when they really had no idea about the art, but many of these attempts had some weight to them. One such outfit was the Merlino Gang, run by Carmelo Merlino out of an auto repair shop called TRC Auto Electric, which served as a headquarters for a notable cocaine operation and countless other criminal activities. Several interesting leads were tied to the Merlino Gang, and though it's unlikely that they all did it, there are still some major unanswered questions and circumstantial evidence that cannot be ignored. Let's start with David Turner and George Reisfelder. David Turner and George Reisfelder were associates of Carmelo Merlino and no strangers to the goings-on at TRC Autoelectric. Reisfelder became affiliated with the Merlino gang after a 16-year stint in prison. He was wrongly convicted and released after 16 years when the guilty party made a deathbed confession. But after that long in prison, his life had drastically changed. His wife left him, and he was so disconnected from his old life that the only place he had to turn was a job offered to him at TRC by a friend he made while inside, Carmelo Merlino. That's when he met David Turner. Though they were loosely affiliated, around the time of the heist they had grown closer in their workings in the cocaine business. Robert Beauchamp, reportedly a lover of George's for several years, told a story that while involved in the gang and drug business, George and David would come to visit him in prison. During one of these visits, Beauchamp told them that it was only a matter of time before they would get caught and needed to get some, quote, crime insurance. He told them about the art strategy. Take a few million worth of art and stash it. That way, when you eventually get caught, you can make a deal. After Beauchamp had heard about the Gardner heist, Reisfelder had come to visit him, and as soon as he saw him, he shook his head and told him, too much, George, too much. The police sketches of the thieves were made based on the descriptions given to the authorities by the guards on duty that night. To this day, George and David are the closest matches to these images. George Reisfelder died on March 11, 1991. Shortly after his death, his brother Richard, who had heard George's name referenced with the heist, reached out to Anthony Amore, the current security director of the Gardner, to clear his brother's name. They met at the Gardner, and Anthony showed him some pictures of the missing art. Reviewing the images one by one, he stated with confidence that he had never seen any of the pieces. Until they got to Shea Tortoni. The last piece shown to Richard made him nearly jump out of his chair, and with heavy emotion in his voice, he said that he'd seen that painting in his brother's apartment. The painting's presence in the apartment was also confirmed by another party shortly after. However, it was no longer there, and its whereabouts are still unknown. Next, we have the Robs, Robert Garenti and Robert Gentile. Robert Garenti was an affiliate of the Merlino gang who died in 2004. He became a person of interest in 2010 after two separate sources advised authorities that they should check his summer home in Maine. Both reports mention the same thing, that there was a hiding place somewhere in the house where the art was hidden at one point and could potentially still be. Anthony Amore and an FBI agent he'd been working with 
went up to the house. It was abandoned, but they were able to gain access, and after some searching, they came upon a small door that led to a storage area with a hidden compartment in the back large enough for the art. Unfortunately, nothing was actually in there, but this lead was more than they'd had in a long time. After their search, they went to Garenti's widow, Eileen, to gather some more information and hopefully some pictures of her late husband. While talking with her, the Gardner robbery was brought up and elicited an unexpected response. At first, she had denied any knowledge of the heist, saying she didn't know anything about the museum at all. But moments later, she broke down crying, telling Amore and the agent she knew about the robbery and that her husband had once had the paintings. She went on to tell them that in the early 2000s, shortly before his death, they'd gone out to dinner with a friend, and on the car ride home, Garenti told her, You don't have to worry anymore. I got rid of the paintings. Apparently that night, after dinner, there was a brief period where he and a friend went out to the car, and it's at that point that he allegedly transferred ownership of the paintings. That friend was Robert Gentile. Robert Gentile, also an affiliate of TRC Auto Electric, was investigated shortly after the meeting with Eileen. Though he denies involvement and knowledge of the heist, the investigation yielded some very interesting evidence. Gentile was caught on tape via a hidden wire worn by an informant discussing the paintings and admitting that Garenti planned the hit on the gardener. In a coordinated attempt to leverage jail time for information on the art, the informant tricked Gentile into giving him some prescription pain medicine that was sitting on the table during one of their meetings. In that moment, the authorities swarmed in and picked him up for dealing a controlled substance. With the recordings and drug charges, they were able to get a warrant to search his Connecticut home. During the raid, they found police hats, handcuffs, and a sizable collection of weapons and explosives. But the most interesting thing found was an old clipping from the Boston Herald about the Gardner robbery, along with a scrap of paper that had all 13 pieces of art listed, along with what they might sell for on the black market. It's unknown if this list was made before or after the robbery, but it led investigators to get a second warrant for the shed in the backyard that the initial warrant didn't cover. In the shed, they found a secret compartment in the floor that housed a large container. When it was pulled up and opened, it was found to be empty, but an interview with his son gave some potentially saddening insight as to why. Apparently years earlier, the shed, and subsequently the compartment, flooded. He remembered that his father was irrationally upset because whatever was down there was now ruined. Is it possible that $500 million worth of art was accidentally destroyed in a flood? We may never know. Robert Gentile was released from prison in 2019 at the age of 82, and he still denies any knowledge of the art. Though there seems to be an infinite number of leads and suspects to explore, from ruthless gangster Whitey Bulger to elusive conman Brian McDevitt, there is one last suspect that I found to be worth mentioning and exploring, Bobby Donati. I've talked a lot about the history, the robbery, and some of the lead suspects, but what I haven't yet touched on, the itch that Bobby Donati scratches, is the question, why were those 13 pieces stolen that night? Specifically, the coup and the finial. The two least valuable things taken in the robbery. When surrounded by hundreds of priceless works of art, why take these? In my opinion, 
Miles Connor has the best answer we may ever get. Before I tell you about Bobby, it's important to know why we even know about him. Bobby Donati became a person of interest in the case when Miles Connor brought him up to authorities. Miles Connor was somewhat of a rock star back in the 70s, but music wasn't his only hobby. He was an athletic guy that studied martial arts and had an affinity for art theft. He is exactly what you imagine an art thief to be. Fit, agile, and capable of those daring feats that we get glimpses of in movies like Ocean's Eleven and Top Cappy. According to him, he and Bobby had pulled off several successful art thefts before, even going so far as to steal a Rembrandt to get out of another charge. They started casing the gardener in 1975. It was during their visits to the museum that they discovered their desire for the less conventional pieces. Bobby reportedly told Connor that he had his eye on the finial, and Connor, a fan of Asian art, was determined to have the goo. Unfortunately, Connor was arrested for drug trafficking and was serving 10 years at the time of the heist in 1990, but he is positive that his absence not only didn't stop Bobby, but it may have actually motivated him to carry out the Gardner theft. Apparently, Bobby and another associate of both Donati and Connor named David Houghton were well-versed in art heists and wanted to steal enough art to reduce Miles Connor's sentence. But here is where we hit our first hiccup with these suspects. Neither Bobby nor David matched the description or sketches of the thieves that the guards gave. Most notably, Houghton was over 300 pounds at the time and would have most definitely been remembered. But Miles Connor has a theory about that. He believes that Donati hired two low-level thugs to do the heavy lifting. Miles' confidence comes from the fact that no one else would have a reason to steal those specific pieces, and the fact that both were taken feels like an homage to their relationship. Not only that, but there's something about the theft of the coup that presses this point. You see, the initial investigations made guesses that the taking of the coup and the finial were spur-of-the-moment decisions. The thieves saw them, thought they looked easy to take and would be valuable, and boom, they're gone. But that wasn't actually the case. According to the museum, the goo was secured to the table that it was resting on, and would have taken immense force and or time to successfully detach from the display. So if it was a spur-of-the-moment decision, and someone tried to take it, you would think that they would leave it behind as soon as it put up a fight. Yet, it's still missing to this day. Unfortunately, we may not get the truth on these guys either, as both Bobby and David died within two years of the heist. Bobby Donati was murdered and found in the trunk of a car, and David Hutton suffered a heart attack. Miles came forward with this information out of the goodness of his heart. Just kidding, he most definitely asked for freedom and the reward money in exchange for information leading to the recovery of the art. Feeling that his story was not enough evidence to be taken seriously, they didn't want to play ball. So having gotten the brush off, he told them they might have some luck in speaking with an antiquities dealer named William Youngworth. The FBI began looking into Youngworth and ended up raiding his home and businesses, but ultimately came up empty-handed as far as the gardener art was concerned. These raids caught the attention of a local journalist named Tom Mashberg, who reached out to Youngworth and ended up forming somewhat of a relationship with him. Late one night in 1997, Youngworth contacted Mashberg to advise that he'd had proof that he could facilitate the safe return of the art in exchange for Connor's freedom and full immunity for himself. He set up a meeting and took Mashberg to a storage facility 
reportedly in the neighborhood of Brooklyn called Red Hook. Inside, he showed the reporter several tubes, and grabbing one, he pulled out its contents and let it unroll, showing Mashberg that it was Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee. He took some paint chips to show the FBI in hopes of assisting in the safe return of the art, but unfortunately, not only did the chips not match the paint used on that particular work, but the description he used when telling the story came under some harsh criticism. You see, in his writing, he described the painting as unfurling, as if it was like a towel. However, in reality, the work has a coat of thick varnish on it that would have resembled something more along the lines of rolled up cardboard rather than a fluid cloth. Youngworth tried once more to convince authorities that he'd had access to the paintings by providing more paint chip samples, and though the chips came back as dating in the correct era, they were not from Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Authorities deduced the location of the storage facility and coordinated a raid, but when they arrived, there was no art to be found. The statute of limitations on the theft ended in the mid-90s, so even if they are still alive, those involved haven't had to worry about criminal charges for 25 years. And yet, to this day, there have been no legitimate recorded sightings of any of the 13 works, and no conclusive evidence as to the identity of the thieves. The frames where the pieces once hung remain empty on the walls as both a reminder and a tribute to Isabella Stewart Gardner and her wish to keep the exhibits the same. The Gardner Museum offered a reward of $1 million for the safe return of the art within three days of the heist. That was raised to $5 million in 1997, and in 2017, it was doubled to $10 million. If you have any information regarding the stolen art, you can contact Anthony Amore, Director of Security at the Gardner Museum, at 617-278-5114 or email theft at gardnermuseum.org. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and feel free to leave a comment for me. You can also reach me at pullinajobcast at gmail.com for corrections, comments, and recommendations on future episodes. This episode was written and produced by me, Alex Godwin-Austin. Information for this episode comes from the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, the Hartford Current, the New York Times, the Gardner Museum, Wikipedia, and WBUR's Last Scene podcast, which I highly recommend if you want more information on this robbery. I'd also like to give special thanks to Steve Kirkjian with the Boston Globe, who's been reporting on this for over 20 years. <laughs>